Good morning. Welcome to River Oaks. It is so good to have you all with us today. Welcome also to those of you joining us online. We are uh, thankful to have you here. You heard Pastor Wes uh, pray after we sang a few minutes ago for those who are grieving in our church. And I want to mention uh, to you, uh, many of you have been praying for uh, years, really, for Emma Hemphill. Uh, Emma went to be with the Lord Thursday evening, and uh, we will have a service for her this coming Saturday at 5 p.m. here in our sanctuary. On the very same day, this coming Saturday, at 1 p.m., we will have a service here for Stephen Pawlowski. Many of you who've been in our church for a while will remember Ken and Laurie Pawlowski and their two sons, uh, Stephen and Michael. Stephen died unexpectedly several weeks ago, and their service has been planned for this coming Saturday at 1 here as well. So, very unusual, on the same day we will have two services for uh, children of elders in our church. These are both families who've been leaders in our church for a number of years. So I would just ask that you keep uh, Lee and Megan, Grace and Mary Salem Hemphill, along with Ken and Laurie Pulaski and their son Michael and his family in your prayers. And uh, I know many of you will be here this coming Saturday and would you join me in praying that God's healing presence be here and his great resurrection power through our Lord Jesus Christ will be magnified here on this coming uh, Saturday. But would you join me now as we pray for these families in particular and then uh, get into our message. Father, as we are gathered as your church, your people, in the name above all names, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we hold before you our friends who are grieving. Lee and Megan, Grace and Mary Salem and their family, Ken and Laurie and Michael and their family. Lord, would you pour healing grace upon them, and Lord, would you uh, use us as the body of Christ to share comfort, love with them. And Lord, our prayer is this coming Saturday that your presence would be mighty here and your name would be mag magnified. And we want to thank you, Lord, for the promise of eternal life, the assurance of eternal life for those who know you. Death has lost its sting because Jesus Christ has conquered death through his resurrection from the grave and how grateful we are to you for that, our Lord and our God. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we get into uh, the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, we have begun a study for those here for the first day, uh, time today of the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. You can get a study guide at our resource center if you'd like to join us either in your small group study or for personal study. Pastor David Holcomb last Sunday gave us what I thought was a tremendous, really an outstanding introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians as he focused on chapter 1. David, by the way, uh, David and Christy are in Dallas this morning where David is officiating today the wedding of their daughter, Caitlin. So David's going to walk her down the aisle and then step up and officiate the wedding. So 
Um, pray he doesn't faint or anything like that to em embarrass the family today. So before we get into 1 Corinthians, a quick look at what we call our, our vision frame. Uh, this is one of the best ways to, to understand who we are as a church. We'll go over this for those of you registered for our Discover Rock class next week. But on the left side of the frame, you'll see the third value down is spirit-led. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit, and the, the spirit-led value is an expression of our awareness that we must be guided by the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill the work that God calls us to do. Uh, Spirit-led is simply an acknowledgement of our dependence upon the Lord. If you look at the top of the frame, you'll see the words, the Spirit's empowering. This is simply saying that for, for those in whose lives the values are being lived out, they're marked by evidence of the Holy Spirit's empowering. Every believer in our church who's growing to maturity should be marked by an increasing level of the Holy Spirit's presence and power. The very last paragraph in our Vision 2025 reads this way. You'll see it next on the screen. Every person at River Oaks recognizes that spiritual growth and effective outreach is only accomplished through God's enabling power. An increasing dependence upon the Holy Spirit through prayer characterizes the church and those who call River Oaks home. We express this dependence often by quoting a theme verse for the church, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Only God can build his church. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And this morning, we're going to consider the importance of the presence, the guidance, and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Apostle Paul places a great emphasis on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Before we get into chapter 2, though, just a bit of background from the very latter part of chapter 1. There at the end of chapter 1, Paul spoke of the seeming weakness of crucifixion. He talks a lot there about the crucifixion of Jesus. And he notes that God used the seeming weakness of crucifixion to demonstrate the greatness of his power. He wrote, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, when he says folly, some of your versions may read foolishness, the same word. He's saying the, the word of the cross is foolishness to people who haven't embraced its saving power. In the Roman world in which Paul lived, crucifixion had become known as the slave's punishment. It was public, it was humiliating, it was literally excruciating, our word that, that actually means out of the cross because of its horrible pain, but it was a great deterrent to runaway slaves, and in the Roman world there were many, many slaves. Roman citizens were typically not crucified because it was such a horrific form of death. But Jesus himself, we read in the book of Philippians chapter 2, humbled himself 
taking upon himself human form. He emptied himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ took the form of a slave, of a servant, when he came to this earth. He didn't come taking the highest place. He came taking the lowest place, and he died on a cross. And Paul says his preaching of the cross seems like foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us, it's the power of God. He goes on to explain, God used the seeming weakness of crucifixion to put to shame mere human wisdom. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul's going to begin making the point that God values humility. God used the cross of all things to nullify human pride. The Messiah Jesus did not come clothed in kingly regalia, surrounded by servants. He came as a servant himself. And then thirdly, God used the seeming weakness of crucifixion to bring his people into true wisdom. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus took the lowest place to bring us into his wisdom, his righteousness, his sanctification, his redemption. This is what we call the gospel. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And with this background, Paul now begins the writing that we read in chapter 2 that PV read for us just a few moments ago. The Apostle Paul starts out by saying that he's aware of his own inadequacy for the work of the kingdom of God. He said, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You might not think about the Apostle Paul that, that way. One who wrote almost half the books of our New Testament is one who came to the church in weakness and fear and much trembling. Paul formerly was known as Saul. He had been a rising star in Judaism. He had the best education. He had the, 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 the MBA, MBA from Harvard of his day. He was a persecutor of the early Christians. He was a leader. In the book of Acts, chapter 9, we read about his conversion. And for that point, he becomes known as, uh, shortly after that, Paul. And he's the key figure in Acts from chapter 9 and on. And after his conversion to Christ, uh, Paul was transformed. This rising star in Judaism was now humble. He'd been transformed from a self-righteous persecutor of Christians into a person who knew his weaknesses and his complete inadequacy apart from God's power. And there is a lesson for us in this. Knowing our weakness is a key to having God's strength, God's power in our service for his kingdom. God is not looking for rising stars who are overly self-confident for his church. He's looking for humble servants who know his word. God opposes the proud, the Bible says, but he gives his grace to the humble.
Paul knew his own inadequacy. Paul then, in his preaching, focused on Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. He writes, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ crucified, he says, was central to my message. Why the crucifixion? Why the crucifixion in particular? This was just a very short part of Jesus' life. Why not first and foremost focus on the wonderful teachings of Jesus or his wonderful miracles or his wonderful examples? Well, all of those are important, as we know. Jesus taught his disciples to teach everything that he taught them, so they're critically important. We do study those. We do teach those. But when Paul would write later in this book to the Corinthians in, in chapter 15, he would deliver to them what he declared was of the first importance, the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He said this is of first importance. If we take the crucifixion out of the picture, we take away the foundation. We take away the foundation. Christ crucified must remain central. Christ died for our sins, Paul says, according to the scriptures, and this is of first importance. According to the scriptures? Where did the scriptures say that the Messiah would die for our sins? Paul's talking about the Old Testament. Passages like the one in Isaiah chapter 53, it was really crystal clear about the role of the Messiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Isaiah lived about 700, 750 years before Christ came. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Out of the anguish of his soul, he, the Messiah, shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus died the slave's punishment. He was pierced. He was crushed. He suffered anguish of soul for us. And Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you but Christ crucified. This, he says, is of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. So Paul, aware of his own inadequacy, He's with the people in weakness and fear and much trembling. He, the former rising star, now knows his weakness. And he knows the heart of the message he needs to bring. And it's that the Messiah himself took the lowest place, the slave's punishment. Christ was crucified for our sins. And now Paul says in his speaking, he relies not on his former training under the best teachers in Judaism, now, in his speaking, Paul relied upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And my speech and my message, he writes, were not implausible words of wisdom, 
but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul lived in a time and in a place uh, where skilled oratory was highly valued. But he didn't seek to demonstrate that. What he saw was the demonstration of the Spirit. He wanted people to trust not in human reasoning, but in, in the power of God. And then finally, Paul calls us. He calls us to rely upon the Holy Spirit in order to understand spiritual truth, as you see in the words on the screen. Paul continues, and by the way, at this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul focuses on the role of the Holy Spirit. In verses 10 to 14 of this chapter, there are six references to the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now think about those words for a moment. The natural person doesn't understand, doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. They're foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. What he's saying is that God, the Holy Spirit, must reveal God's truth to us if we're to understand it. We need his help. We need his help to understand scripture. We need his help to, to grasp and appreciate and receive the gospel. We need his help to live as God calls us to live. Spiritual things must be spiritually discerned. This has tremendous practical significance for us when it comes to sharing our faith with others. You and I cannot convince people to become Christians by human persuasiveness or well-reasoned arguments. Only, only the Holy Spirit can open a person's eyes to their need for the gospel and the reality that the gospel meets their need. That's why Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we should pray. Like Paul, we should know our human weakness, but know the greatness of his power and be utterly dependent upon the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us in our ministry to others. Whether it's teaching children in Noah's Ark or Kids Rock <clears throat> or leading a small group or witnessing to your coworker or your neighbor. We should be people of prayer who are praying for the Holy Spirit to open doors for us. Like Paul, we need his power to make our speaking effective. In fact, if Paul, who could probably quote great portions of the Old Testament, needed the power of the Holy Spirit, how much more do we? How much more do we? As we continue in the book of 1 Corinthians, it will be important that we have a good understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. And I don't want to assume that everyone <clears throat> has a clear understanding, so I want to take just a moment to talk about who the Holy Spirit is. 
the diagram you see on the screen, I don't know the origin of it. I only know it's, it's very, very old. It is one way that people have tried to depict the Trinity. Sometimes people will say, you Christians, you worship three gods, but that is not true. Christians are monotheistic. We worship only one God. But the one God we worship has revealed himself to be triune. That is, he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the critically important doctrine or biblical teaching known as the Trinity. The Trinity is simply the historic Christian belief that goes back to the days of the early church that there is only one God and he exists eternally as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God. This has been God in all eternity. In all eternity before creation, God existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect communion and in perfect fellowship. Out of his perfect love and perfect communion, perfect fellowship within the Godhead, he chose to create us. Perhaps we should take the the uh, advice of the great theologian J.I. Packer who suggested we could refer to God as the divine team. One God existing eternally is three distinct persons. The Holy Spirit, it seems, uh, is less familiar to many Christians than the Father and the Son. So I want to just take a moment and, and take a really brief snapshot look at what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit um, t looking at 10 of his works in particular, very briefly. Number one, the Holy Spirit was instrumental in creation. We read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. Number two, he spoke through the prophets. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. The Holy Spirit is sometimes referred to in Scripture as the Spirit of Christ, who is in them predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Thirdly, he guided the writing of Scripture. Peter writes that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, borne along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us, who causes us to be born again. Paul writing to Titus says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he, he saved us, not because of works done by us and righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. To be regenerated is to be reborn, born again, in Jesus' words, and renewal, how? Of the Holy Spirit of the Holy Spirit. He lives within believers. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of Christ. He's called God's spirit. He's simply referred to often in 1 Corinthians as the spirit. 
He lives within us. I think if we were always conscious of his presence within us, we would be inclined to, to live very differently. He empowers us. Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. He guides us. He guides us into truth, as we read in John 16, 13, and 14. Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, another uh, different way of referring to the Holy Spirit, he's the Spirit of truth. He'll guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He'll glorify me, for he'll take of what is mine and declare it to you. He gives us gifts so we can serve others. We'll read about these in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul refers to these gifts as manifestations of the Spirit that he gives for the common good, for the good of the body of Christ. Furthermore, he develops fruit to make us more like Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And finally, he enables us to enjoy fellowship with God. If you're not enjoying your relationship with God and his presence with you and his fellowship, maybe you need to ask him for a greater work of the Holy Spirit in your life, a greater awareness of the spirit of the living God. You often hear this benediction at the end of our services. We'll say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship or the communion mean the same thing of the Holy Spirit be with you. And so as we reflect on this, Paul's emphasis on the fact that we must have the Holy Spirit to, to guide us in ministry, to understand spiritual truth. I'd raise this question, first of all, have I'd ask you to ask yourself this question, rather. Have I responded to the drawing work of the Holy Spirit by receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord? Becoming a Christian is more than just an intellectual decision that, yeah, I believe in God, believe Jesus was historically real. It's the Holy Spirit showing you that you, you need his forgiveness for sins. You need his regenerating power to cause you to be born again to new life. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Have you responded in faith by receiving Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Secondly, am I relying on the Holy Spirit to help me understand spiritual truth? Jesus referred to him several times as the helper with a capital H. We're to rely on the Holy Spirit as our helper for our spiritual growth. If you feel like you're at a place where you're stagnated in your spiritual growth, you have a helper upon whom you can call, the great Holy Spirit. And then finally, am I relying on his power in my ministry to others? Jesus said you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. One thing I've learned as a Christian, I can do nothing that bears any fruit for the kingdom of God without the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. For many years before we began our church, uh, my role at uh, Renolda Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem was, was teaching a course in personal witnessing. 
sharing with people how to share their faith. And we would go out door to door all over, and knocked on hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of doors, and went to Salem for Scythe County, talking to people. And there's something I've observed over the years of trying to, I, I guess, uh, 16, 17 years training people how to share their faith. Sometimes there are people who are very, very confident in their ability Maybe they've got some good sales training. They're skilled communicators. And very, they're very confident. I can handle this. I can memorize the outline. I can go talk to people, and I can, I can persuade them. I know some apologetics. I've, I've got this. Over time, those people are not very effective at bearing fruit. There are others who say, I'm absolutely terrified of this. <laughs> I mean, it, it's terrifying to think of, me trying to talk to somebody about Jesus and sharing the gospel. They're like Paul. I was with you and in weakness and in fear and much trembling. But they know they've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit. Often they're more introverted, generally speaking. And these folks, it's beautiful to see the Holy Spirit work through them and to see them share the gospel with someone See someone come to faith. And it just reminds me, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You need the power. You need the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life if you're going to bear fruit for God. And so this morning, I encourage you, those of, those of you who are, are not sure you're believers, to, to most importantly, make that decision of placing faith in Jesus, because it's only those who have placed faith in Jesus who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within. But many Christians have the Holy Spirit dwelling within and live with this as if he doesn't exist, live in complete disregard of him. I think that's what the Bible would call grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit. Paul said, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Honor him. Be filled with the Spirit, Paul says. And I take that to mean we should seek to be daily full of his presence, yielded to his control, guided by him. May we be that way. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we come in the name of Jesus, and I pray first for any here who have never put their faith in you. May this be the day of their salvation. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, draw them, lead them, reveal to them their need and the fact that Jesus alone meets that need through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave to atone for our sin. And Father, for those of us who are believers, we pray. We pray for the fullness of your Spirit we pray for the awareness of your presence. We pray that we would regard and honor your holy presence with us. We pray, Father, for a greater work of your power. We pray for spiritual gifts in our lives and in our church. We pray for spiritual fruit to increase in our lives. Bring your greater power to us, Lord, we pray. In the mighty name of the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus.